So <clears throat> my name is Sam Andreatis. I was uh, speaking a few years ago, about seven years ago, I think it was, and I was bringing up the statistics of people at that time who identified as transgender. And it was about one in two or 300 people at that time kind of identifying as transgender. Now, that's a big umbrella, actually. Transgender can refer to a number of different categories of folks. It could be someone who is an activist who's, who wants to, who's really uh, uh, doing work to tear down the gender binary. Uh, could also be uh, an adult who is uh, cross-dressing for adult recreational purposes. Uh, and it could also be that which we hear about most in, in the media, which is someone with gender dysphoria, someone who has a, a deep alienation with their body. Uh, and at that time, um, the number didn't seem that great. Uh, but what we can, uh, we can know is that even at that time, like you go back and look at the DSM-5, uh, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It came out about 10, 10 years ago, I would say. Uh, and you just look at the statistics there, and uh, you'll, you'll find that somewhat gender dysphoria afflicted about 1 in 50,000 women or about 1 in 20,000 men. So that's what, that's what was back then. About 1 in 50,000 women, 1 in one in uh, 20,000 men. Uh, and I remember saying at the time, this is going to increase. This is going to get very big. And I don't think anybody took me seriously. Um, but I would like to direct your attention to a Gallup poll that was done this year. And it uh, asked and went around by demographics as the number of people who now identify as LGBT+. Plus one of those letters. And it turns out that among Gen X Americans, one in 20 now identify by one of those letters, LGBT um, or something along that spectrum. And if you go to millennial Americans, younger generation, it's one in 10. Uh, but when they asked the Gen Z Americans, it turned out to be one in five. One in five of Gen Z Americans would identify themselves by one of those letters. And I bring this up just to, just to make a point with you that this is not something that we don't have to think about. If you say, well, this, doesn't, uh, this isn't part of my life, this isn't the way I'm living my life, so I don't have to think about it. Yeah, you do, because this is coming to a relationship near you. Especially because um, when someone experiences an alienation from their body now, someone experiences gender dysphoria, the answer that is given, the solution that's recommended by just about everybody from you know, the American Psychiatric Association to American Girl Dolls is uh, to go on this course of action where you are first cross-dressing and then you are taking hormones to contradict the chemical reactions in your body, to take your body chemistry in a different way, to contradict what's going on in your body, and then uh, destructive surgeries that go on. And this is happening. This is part of our world now. Um, it's, it's, 
It's not something that you can say, well, I'm just not going to deal with anything like this. The question is, how are we going to deal with it? Because it's, it doesn't matter really if you, if you agree with it. It doesn't matter if you think about it or want to think about it or not. Um, it's it's, it's going to be there. Um, one of the reasons why is because it is such a money-making proposition. Um, the, this comes from the Grandview Research. They're a firm that identifies different market capitalizations for investors to provide opportunities, to identify opportunities for investors. And they've identified that trans is now a $2 billion industry. $2 billion industry. Okay, so this is not going away. It doesn't matter what you think of it. It doesn't matter who you elect. Um, there, there's no way that uh, the medical establishment is going to just turn around and say, okay, well, maybe not about it. It's here. It's here for us. Um, so it's coming to a relationship near you. The question is, what are you going to do about it? And I think we can get real help, real answers for ourselves. How do we respond to this as individuals? How do we respond to this as families? How do we respond to this as a church? Uh, from the scriptures, I think that we can really get help from the scriptures and from the book of Second Sam, Samuel. So before we close the book of Samuel, we're coming to an end now. This will be our last uh, sermon about Second Samuel. And before we close the book, I wanted to look with you on the, on, the, on the few places where the New Testament quotes the book of Samuel. You know, we've been going through David's life and understanding the, the events of that time. Uh, but you might be surprised to find out that the New Testament only quotes Samuel three times. Only three times. You know, there are, there are many allusions to the events of the book of Samuel, right? King David and David's son and, and, all, and all that went on there. Many, many different references in the New Testament, but only three places where the text of 2 Samuel is actually quoted. And two of those places have to do with the most important event in the two-volume book of Samuel. And, you know, the children have been doing so well in answering questions here. I'll just throw this out. Again, maybe the kids will know. Me. I don't know if someone knows, but can anyone tell me, take a guess at what the most important event is in the book of Samuel? What would you say the most important thing that happened in the book of Samuel and maybe where it is? Anyone have an idea? Kind of what the book is about. Important event in the book of Samuel. Anyone want to try? You're too cautious. Well, it's where I would say God makes a covenant, right, with David. It's kind of what the book is leading to. It's what the book builds up to, is when God makes a covenant with David. And those first two quotations in, in the New Testament refer to that place, which is in 2 Samuel 7. But there's a third quotation. That's not from that. Instead, it's from the, the song of the great king, which appears at the end of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 22 that we've been looking at. And that's quoted. That's the third only quotation outside of quotations of 2 Samuel 7 
in the New Testament. It's made by none other than the Apostle Paul, and it's made in Romans 15. And it can really help us because Paul does a remarkable reading for us of the events and the experience of King David. It's not something that you would expect, but Paul actually takes us into the experience of David. It helps us understand it, and I think really can help us in order to face uh, the, the events that we're facing in our lives today, our situation. So we're going to read um, both passages. We're going to read the Second Samuel passage of the experience of King David, and then we're going to read the Apostle Paul and his quotation of that from, uh, from Romans 15. We're going to read the lead-up in the song, the great song of the king, and then we're going to read Paul's quotation of it to help us help Paul... Um, so we can see Paul help us understand the passage. So I wonder if you would stand as Amanda uh, reads that for us. Our first scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 22, beginning in verse 44. You have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me as, I hear, as soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. The Lord lives, blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and I will sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. Continuing to the book of Romans, chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. This is the word of the Lord. Good God. Thank you very much. Please make yourself comfortable. Yeah, so you might read these two passages in their bulletin, in your bulletin, they're side by side. You might think, what do these have to do with each other? And sometimes the accusation is made, like it often is, that New Testament writers just kind of pluck verses out of the Old Testament without paying attention to context. And sometimes that's made about the Apostle Paul or about Matthew, that they're just they just pick verses they happen to be needing, you know, the thought of and not really paying attention to the original author's intent. But what I want to help us to see this morning is that that's not the case, is that Paul is actually bringing out the meaning for us and really honoring what David was going through in his experience. Uh, this is, again, as I said, the, the, the wonderful song of the king at the end of, of, of the book of Samuel, and it's 
David reflecting on what he saw God doing in his life. So what God did through his reign, and it has a lot to do with war. Um, if you read the whole song, and I encourage you to do it sometime, 2 Samuel 22, you can read the whole song before we get to our part. It's all about trouncing the Gentiles. It's all about taking the enemies of God, the enemies around uh, the Israelite kingdom, and that David had to fight. And in those days, it was appropriate. There, there needed to be war in the days of that covenant as he was establishing the physical kingdom of God on earth. There needed to be these battles. And David was talking about these battles and how God just trounced the enemies, destroyed them, especially he's thinking of you know, that giant Goliath that he slew. But then as time went on, God kept giving, giving David these victories Battle victories. This was a military song. Uh, and God was just, just one after another. And it really was extraordinary. David had this string of victories, one after another of these enemies that were just trounced. But then we get to verse 44 here that we're, that we're quoting and we just heard read, where David says, there's something else I see going on. There's something different. If you look at what he's saying in verse 44, he says, there's another kind of victory that I'm witnessing. He talks about how God delivers me from strife. He delivers me from the striving. What does he mean by that? Well, you go on to verse 45 and verse 46. God is somehow making the enemies submit even without a fight. Without a fight, they're coming in. They're surrendering. They're coming out with their hands up. They're saying, we surrender. And David is, is puzzled by this. He's marveling. It's like, really? There's no fighting involved? No, they're coming in. And we saw some of those stories where Gentiles, like the, the kingdom to the north of Israel, where they had some people coming and actually worshiping Yahweh. Worshiping Yahweh. And David is looking at these kinds of experiences also. And he's saying, there's something else that God is doing where he is bringing these, these Gentiles in without a fight. He's actually establishing them, even, even worshiping among them. And so he goes on to say, verse 48, it is God who avenges me. So it's like I'm not even having to avenge myself. I'm not even having to engage in violence or fighting here because God is avenging me. And verse 50, I will praise you among the Gentiles. So he's praising God. He has this picture of praising God, and the Gentiles are praising God also. This is one of these places where we see that the kingdom of God on earth was always meant to be an international kingdom. And, and David is not quite understanding. He's puzzled. He's marveling at what he sees God starting to do, even his covenant. Okay? So that's the left-hand side of your page in your bulletin. That's the song, what's going on in the great song. So now, if you look at the right-hand side, you look at the Apostle Paul's quotation of it. It's very illuminating. Now, this is from the, the letter to the Romans, and, and Romans is supposed to be this great theological treatise, and it is. But it was a letter, and, and uh, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Paul was writing this letter to get Jews and Gentiles to live together, to actually be able to live with one another. And that was, a, that was quite a feat, to actually be able to worship with one another. And that was hard. And so that's why he's writing this passage. 
Um, and he talks about these promises in verse 8, promises that, that actually, they were made to the patriarchs, not just to David. But, but Paul is bringing out, this is a theme all the way through the scriptures, that the Gentiles were supposed to come in and glorify God together with the Jews, that that was going to happen. And it was kind of a theme and a promise that was going to go, that goes throughout the scriptures. That's why King Solomon, when he inaugurated the first temple, you go and you read about the inauguration ceremony and it's this stuff and it's supposed to be all about the Jews, but, but Solomon spends a lot of his time just talking about the Gentiles, how this is going to be a place of prayer for the Gentiles to come on, these other people that are on the outside. That's what this temple is going to be about. It's kind of strange because it's supposed to be a monumental you know, event in the history of, of the Jewish people, and he spends it talking about the Gentiles. It's why Jesus gets so angry when he shows up at the temple, and there are rules and things going on that are keeping the Gentiles from worshiping there as well. So this is a theme, and Paul is, is, is grabbing hold of this, and, and he's looking around. This is, this is Paul, 25 years church planting, looking and seeing what God is doing around the empire and in Rome, and what he sees is God bringing Gentiles in to worship with the Jews. Those who are on the outside, he's bringing them in. And so that's what he's talking about here. Wonderful. And it's interesting when he, when he says verse, verse 9, he starts talking about the Gentiles there, right? Um, who were strange. You know, in the, in the Septuagint version of, the, of David's song there, 2 Samuel 22, if you look at verse 45 and 46 where it says foreigners there, where God is he's talking about foreigners, in the Septuagint, in one of the versions of the Old Testament, it says the strange children. It's the strange children that are coming around uh, David and, and being brought in. It's just po- why Paul might have thought of this passage. Because the Romans were strange. <laughs> so what I'd like to do here um, is just show you some of the things that would be very strange um, for the Jews at that time. Uh, the Roman culture, just as part of the Roman culture, this is what it was to be a Roman, is they would have these bathhouses. And um, I'm, I'm looking at the Curian uh, bathhouse here because this is very well excavated. And here's a hexagonal pool that they would come. And, you know, Romans, they would go to these public baths. It was just what you did as a Roman. It was part of their culture. So they would come to these public baths, and they would disrobe, and they would have a public bath, and who knows else? What they would do, just something that a Jew would look at and go, you know, that's very distasteful. Uh, Jews would not be excited about this kind of feature of Roman. And so these people would be strange. People who go to baths would be strange, public baths like this. Uh, But that's what they did. There are other features of the Romans, especially what they did in their spare time. They would have these games, like the Isthmian games. And here's the starting line. Uh, in the Isthmus, which is near Corinth, where they had the Isthmian, Isthmian games. And uh, here's some people who are lined up on the starting uh, line to show you uh, where they would do. They would take off and race. Only these people are dressed. When the Romans did it, they were half naked or maybe you know, completely naked. And the Jews, if you were a Jew, you would look at this and you would say, what on earth? 
They run around half naked and they compete. Uh, here's, the, here's the stadium field of, of actual Olymp Olympia, right, where the Olympics were held. And these, these Greeks and these Romans, they would run around and they would compete for these you know, crowns of vegetation. And you would be like, why are they doing this? It's just strange to you. It would be distasteful. Uh, and that's not the half of it, not, not to mention what they did in Rome, where they had the great stadium uh, in Rome. And there they would have the carnivals. They would have very bloody ceremonies. And Romans, you know, would go to these. They really liked them. And so Jews would look at Romans and be like, this is what you do in your spare time? You know, it's kind of gross. And so to sit down and eat with one of these people for a Jew, it would be kind of like, you know, sitting down to eat with a reptile, you know, or so Simon Peter thinks in, in the book of Acts. Very, just very strange. Now, that's if you're a Jew looking at a Roman. <clears throat> but if you were a Roman looking at a Jew, you, you didn't look on with admiration, a lot of admiration either. Because these Jews... They just seemed to have all these rules that they followed. And some of them seemed really unnecessary. But to Jews, they were really important. This was rules of living, what they would do. And they were always washing their hands. And they were always, you know, washing their pots and, and uh, doing these different things that just uh, Romans would look at and seem unnecessary. They'd go into these mitzvahs here. Here's a, like these pools that they would go and wash in all the time. Uh, here's one that's... Uh, uh, been excavated, and the Jews would always have these and do them. So if you were a Roman looking at a, a Jew, you weren't, you know, that admiring. And especially, there was this thing that Jews did with their bodies, especially male Jews, called circumcision. And, you know, if you were a Roman, you didn't get that. If you were a Roman, you'd be looking at that and saying, you know, it's kind of gross what Jews do. In other words, if you were, look, you were a Roman, Jews were strange to you. Okay? If, you were a, if you were a Jew, Romans were really strange. If you were a Roman, Jews were really strange. Now, do you see the problem? The problem that Paul was seeing is that in the church of Rome, God was bringing in these outsider Romans, into worship alongside of the Jews. And so why did Paul quote 2 Samuel? Because he's saying, look, guys, this has been the plan all along. You have this community. Originally, most likely, this was originally Jewish. But as time went on, the Roman church became more and more Gentile-like, more, more made up of more Gentiles, and it caused friction. It caused trouble because they were so strange uh, to the Jews. So what Paul was trying to do is to, tell, is to tell them how to live together, how to be a Jew and a Roman worshiping in the same place. And how does he tell them to do it? Well, we can just step through the passage, can't we? <laughs> He's very clear. Just, just, just walk through the passage. Verse 1, don't please yourselves. You are here to not please yourselves. Verse 2, you're here to live to please your neighbor. 
because some of them might come into your church. That's how you're supposed to be living, to please your neighbor. Verse 3, you're going to bear insults like Christ did because of the way that you're perceived, you're going to be insulted. So you need to bear those insults cheerfully. And this is also that verse 6, right? You could all be together with one mind, one voice that is in that phrase, one accord, used 10 times in the book of Acts to describe how Jews and Gentiles are coming together, how they need to become together. And then verse 8, this is from the time of the patriarchs, that bring the Gentiles in to glorify God. Do you see what's going on, Jews, in the insiders in your congregation? Do you see what's going on, what God wants to do? And then verse 9 quotes the climax of the great song of the king. God is going to win the Gentiles without a fight. See how Paul is using the song? God is going to win the Gentiles without a fight. You don't need to go to fight. You don't need to fight this. You don't need to strive because he's winning the Gentiles without a fight. And David saw it from afar. That's what's going on between the two sides of your bulletin. <laughs> all right, so what does this all have to do with transgenderism? Right? Why did I bring this up? Because you and I need to think about what we want when someone who has made decisions that you might not agree with or might seem strange to you come into our congregation and have to use the bathroom. What, when you have a transgender person come into your congregation and they want to use the bathroom, what do you want them to do? I want us to think about it. I want us to think about how we can apply this passage because it's really a similar situation. The people come in and they are strange to you. Okay, What do you want them to do? People who've been dealing with life differently than you. Maybe as part of the Roman culture. Maybe as part of the way they've been advised. Maybe they've made decisions that you can't agree with. Yet how do you want them to feel when they come into your congregation? If God is it's the same thing. Should we embarrass them for their decisions? Or what? We need to think about this. We need to talk about this. We need to understand what we're doing. We need to think about how we want to do this. Right? That's what I'm asking you to do. And I'm even asking the staff to think about this. How do we want to handle this? What do we want to be doing in terms of our bathrooms? You know? Now, as soon as I start to say this, I know that there are some objections that some of you might have. You say, well, I don't want to try to accommodate uh, these people because I'm concerned about our safety. Right? You might say, well, you know, I, we try to accommodate people like this. I don't want to have certain people who used to be guys maybe going into the women's bathroom with my wife or my daughter. and I'm worried about that. And if you're objecting that way, what I have to say to you is, you know what? Good point. It's a good point. There is 
predation in the world. The world is not a safe place. That's why we need to think about it. But can we do it in a way that still welcomes those whom God is bringing into our midst? Can we still do that? What's the solution? I don't know. Is it single-use bathrooms? Is it monitored bathrooms? Can we think about it? Can we think about a way to welcome the strange that might be strange to us in our midst? That's one objection. I can think of another objection that I heard actually just this week. It says, you know, if we try to accommodate these folks, then I feel like if we do that, we are agreeing with their stance on things. We're agreeing with their position on things. And I would just ask you to think about that. Do you really have to? To make sure somebody is comfortable and feeling safe in your, in your church, are, does that mean you're agreeing with all the decisions that they've made? I don't think so. But you have to think about it. You need to talk to your neighbors to find out what it is that makes them comfortable. And we can do it just because you want to treat someone with dignity, it doesn't mean that you're agreeing with their position or the things that, that uh, they have. So how can we look to apply this passage? I'd say, and this is what I'm asking of this church, is to just think about it, to talk about it. But if your question here is this morning, as I'm talking about this, if, if, your, if your question in your mind is, why should I be made uncomfortable by these people's choices and strange choices to me? Or why should I have to be inconvenienced by the strange practices of these people? Or why should I even have to deal with this uh, when these people are coming and trying to change our way of life? Why should you? Because you're a Christian. <laughs> That's why. Because of Romans 15. That's why. But if this is the attitude in your heart to these things, like I am upset or I'm annoyed because these people are changing my way of life, if that is your attitude in your heart, then I do need to call you to repent. Actually, I, the Apostle Paul is calling you to repent. Because, friends, this is our world. It is not going away. It is here. And I think Paul is telling us exactly how to respond here because that is the situation in Rome. You had people who were needing to confront the strange. And so what can we do, especially for those who may need to see the image of God in themselves when they don't. How can we do this? All right. Well, I'm going to ask you to think about it as a church. And I would just say uh, two, two things. Let me address myself to two different uh, people here uh, in closing. Uh, one, if you're here and maybe, maybe I've been talking about you, maybe you're one of these people who's made these different decisions uh, you maybe don't come from a Christian background. You happen to be with us this morning. Let me just tell you something. These Christians that you're sitting with, they're kind of strange. They, they, uh, they do these strange things. They seem to be really caught up with a lot of rules 
and you look at them and they might seem unnecessary to you. Um, but let me tell you, they, they follow these rules, they do these things because they believe if they do what's in the Bible, it's healthful for them. That's all. But it's not the thing. It's not the reason that they're here. Let me tell you the reason why they're here. They're here because they have need. They found that they had need in themselves. Probably the reason you might be here. The reason we're here is because we are in need of grace. The reason we're here is because we found that we don't need to clean up our act before coming to our Lord Jesus Christ. We're here because Christ did not please himself. And that verse 3 in, in Romans 15 there goes very deep into the very persons of God. We're here because Christ has been this way for us. He pitied us even when we were enemies. So you're in the right place. And I would say also to those of you here who are the inside, are the insiders, let me just say, how have you learned Christ? How have you learned Christ? Because he welcomed you when you were strange. He welcomed us when we were the strange, and he did it with open arms to us. So how then should we respond to our culture? How should we respond to them? This is what the Lord has taught us. Now let's stand and come to his table.